passage for this morning comes from Mark, chapter 12, verse 28. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, Jesus answered, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the men replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kevin. We've been looking at the Gospel of Mark, uh, the first and shortest of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that begin the New Testament. And they tell us about Jesus, about his ministry, about what he said, what he did, how he interacted with people. It starts with Jesus um, performing miracles, uh, going to Galilee in the north, gathering disciples, uh, beginning to teach them how to behave after he is gone. And then there's a sharp turn in the gospel when uh, Peter confesses that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus turns and heads south to Jerusalem, uh, enters the city three times. First, in what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, he rides on a donkey, enters Jerusalem, and is acclaimed as the Messiah, the returning king. The second time he enters Jerusalem, he challenges the money changers who have turned the courts around the temple into a marketplace and a place of uh, commercial exchange. The third time, he goes in and is confronted by the authorities a whole series of confrontations between Jesus and the ruling elite. They know about him. They've heard about this teacher, miracle worker uh, up in the north, and now he is right in the very center of Jerusalem, the center of power, and uh, he is challenged by all the power groups in, in Jerusalem. Last week we saw the Sadducees, the aristocratic uh, leaders of uh, Israel in Jerusalem, uh, challenging him and trying to catch him out in a discussion about marriage and resurrection. And so let's continue. Remember, he's been through encounters with a series, series of debates with the leaders, the elite of Jerusalem, and now he has this encounter. One of the teachers of the Lord came and heard them debating. So this unnamed person is, like some of the other groups, one of the teachers of the law, and he's heard Jesus debating. That is, he's seen how Jesus has dealt with these groups that have been coming to him. Uh, first, the chief priests and teachers of the law, uh, the elders of Jerusalem come to him and challenge his authority. The Pharisees and the Herodians, the Herodians are the ones who support Herod, the puppet king installed by Rome, they try to divide Jesus from his disciples and his followers and those who 
um, acclaim him by forcing him or trying to force him to choose between paying taxes to Rome and not paying taxes. The Sadducees, as I said, the aristocrats come and give him a theological riddle about marriage and resurrection. But noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, of all the commandments, which is the most important? So there's a mood change here. The confrontations before were leaders, um, people in power, trying to trip Jesus up, trying to catch him out, trying to squelch him. This is the first time there's been a positive inquiry. This is a teacher of the law, and he's asking about the law. And when it says that uh, Jesus had given them a good answer, the word there, kolose, does not just mean that it was a clever answer or he was uh, avoiding a trap. It connotes that his answer was noble, worthwhile, uh, satisfying, wholesome. And so this encounter is a seeking after the wholesome nature of Jesus' teaching. Not trying to catch him out, but a genuine inquiry. What is the most important commandment? Well, according to the teachers of the law, in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, there were 613 different commandments. And so he's asking Jesus, as I'm sure the uh, teachers of the law were often asked, what's the most important? What's the essence? Where should we be paying attention? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So Jesus is quoting here from the fifth book of the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, the first one, the book of origins, the book of beginnings. It talks about how God created the world, the creation of Adam and Eve. It talks about Abraham, his sons, uh, Isaac and Jacob. It talks about the beginnings of Israel. The second book, Exodus, tells the story of how Moses leads uh, the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, leads them out into the wilderness to Mount Sinai, where God gives them the law through Moses. Leviticus is named after, the third book is named after the tribe of Levi, who were the priestly tribe. Much of the law was about them, about how to worship, how to sacrifice, how to build and set up a tabernacle, uh, the rules and rituals of cleanliness. Numbers, the fourth book, is about the numbering of the tribes. It's a lot of lists of who the tribes are, what their ancestry is, their genealogies, who are the people of Israel. But the fifth book, Deuteronomy, is perhaps the most poignant. I had a professor when I was at seminary, and he would walk around. He was a, he'd written a commentary in several books on Deuteronomy. And he would walk about without noticing reading the book of Deuteronomy in Hebrew constantly. And we'd make fun of him. He was just completely obsessed by this book. Deuteronomy, Deutero, means second. This is the second giving of the law. Moses, because he didn't trust God fully, was never allowed to go into the promised land. And so he brings Israel 
to the banks of the Jordan, and he can see on the opposite side of the Jordan River the promised land, but he himself will never go there. And in Deuteronomy, it's his sort of farewell address. Remember these things before you enter the promised land. And that's what Jesus is quoting from here. And let me read to you the part that Jesus is quoting. Remember, this is Moses. He can see the promised land. He's never going to go there. And he's speaking to Israel for the last time. These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess, so that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey so that it may go well with you and that you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. The first part of that, hear, O Israel, in Hebrew, is Shema Yisrael. And from that, you get the phrase, the Shema. And this is the center of Jewish prayer life. It was expected that every Orthodox Jew said this twice a day, the Shema. Hear, O Lord, um, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. It was expected to be the center of what you taught your children when you taught them to pray. And by tradition, the Shema was the last thing you said on your deathbed before you died. So by quoting from this, Jesus is putting himself in the mainstream of Judaism. He is saying, I'm no radical. I didn't come to change things. He's grounding what he is teaching in the Torah, in Moses' teaching in Deuteronomy, in the Shema, the heart of Jewish prayer. So this is a way of sharing his solidarity with everything that is happening in the law and in the temple in Jerusalem. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. You know, this English word all doesn't do justice in uh, the original, as uh, Moses spoke it, the word is miod, which is translated muchness, force, abundance, exceedingly. He's not just saying, give God all you have, or your whole heart. He's saying, all the force, all the muchness of your life, your heart, mind, your soul, your strength, Give him exceedingly everything that you can be. It's a call to forceful action and love. It is, of course, call to making God the principle, the driving force between every as behind every aspect of your life. It's really a call to the Christian life. Christianity is not just a matter of emotion. 
although clearly emotion is a big part of our relationship with God. We are called to love God. But notice that Jesus adds, adds, with all your mind. That's the only addition he makes to what Moses said. All your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. We are not just to rest in our relationship with God. We are to pursue it. We are to try to understand it, make sense of it. Just as lovers seek to know and seek to know everything about their beloved, that should be our attitude to God. In the 11th century in England, uh, a church father, Anselm, he put it this way, the Christian life is faith-seeking understanding. That is the uh, motto of Princeton Seminary where I went. And it's always underpinned my understanding of my role as a Christian. We don't just hear about Jesus and say, yes, I'm a Christian. Our faith in Jesus, in God, in the Christian life is a beginning. It is a starting point. And we should try to make sense of it in every aspect of our life. We should try to apply it. We should try to make it intelligible to ourselves and others. Faith seeking understanding. The muchness of your mind, the muchness of your heart, the muchness of your strength, the muchness of your soul. That's Christianity. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. There's no commandment greater than these. Love God, love your neighbor. The essence of the law, the commandments of God, rules for life. Love God, that's the beginning. Love your neighbor, and that's the Christian life summed up. But that, what does that mean for us? How should we think about the law? After all, Americans, above all people, reject people telling them what to do. They don't like rules. America is all about freedom, creating your own life, following your own bliss, doing it your way. How should we think about these rules, these commandments, about God telling us how to live? Well, one helpful way that I found to think about it is uh, a particular teacher, a uh, psychologist, uh, Jean Piaget, he pioneered the study of children, how children develop. And don't worry, I'm going to get back to the laws. This is stepping stones right here. And he was interested in how do children grow and change? How do you get from helpless, egocentric, needy bundles of chaos to competent, cooperative, social creatures? people who are civilized, who can live with others. What is that process? What does it look like? And he started with children because he thought that children would be a window into how human beings become who they are. And he was particularly interested in the games that children play. Specifically how, when they get to a certain age, they start to play with others, and they create games in a group and oftentimes quite complicated games. You need no 
uh, teacher or parent or adult to tell them how to play. They will just spontaneously start playing out, acting out games, assigning roles, doing different things. And even when these games are very complicated, they know the rules. If someone in the game breaks the rules, there'll be a furious dispute. And if a child continuously breaks the rules, they'll be ostracized. But what Piaget noticed, and this was his insight, if you took an individual child out of that game, even though they know the rules, they could play by the rules, they would be competent in the game, if you tried to ask a child, what are the rules of this game? How do you play this game? What is the law behind this game? The child couldn't say. They couldn't explain. The, the concept of rules wasn't even present to them. They had fully internalized these implicit ways of behaving, the law, the rules, but they couldn't explain them, they couldn't codify them, they couldn't even talk about them. And so Piaget, his insight was that rules don't create games or societies or law. It is playing the game that creates the rules. Rules, law, are an emergent feature of social beings. When you play, when you interact with others, you quickly learn what's acceptable and what's not. And so learning to play a game is part of the socialization process. And Piaget theorized that this was the basis for all human tribes, societies, cultures. They start with some spontaneous emergent set of social rules that allow them to get along, that allow them to survive, that allow them to function. But it is only much later that it is codified. So how does this help us? Well, if this is true, you would expect to see many different kinds of societies with many different kinds of rules, implicit or explicit. Cultures that had different ways of doing things, different values, different assumptions about the people playing the game, people in the society. And if you look at human history, if you look at anthropology, this is true. Cultures are wildly divergent around the world. I saw a terrifying documentary on the Aztecs. A whole culture based on cruelty, pain, torture, and human sacrifice. Not just to other people, to themselves. They, they start these incredible things through their tongues and through their ears. and It's just incredible what they did. Tribes that base their whole rituals of society on being cannibals and eating people ceremonially. The tribes around Israel worship Molech, and to guarantee a good crop, you would sacrifice your child by throwing a child in a fire dedicated to Molech or into a hot pot, a red-hot iron pot. Throw your kid in there, you don't have to worry about your crops. Eskimos and Native Americans would leave the sick and the old behind when they moved camp. Mother Teresa in Calcutta, she began her ministry by going to the Temple of the Dead in Calcutta, which was an empty plaza, it had a roof on it, but there was just a stone floor. And when people took, got too old or too sick or too frail to take care of themselves, 
Their family would just bring these people to the temple, the Hindu temple, and lay them down and leave them to die. And Mother Teresa, she began her ministry by hugging those people as she died. And it became her test because when she became famous, many people would go to try to work with her in Calcutta, try to be a follower. And her test was to send these idealists to the temple and have them hold the dying people all day. And if their faith was strong enough to do that, then she could use them. There are all kinds of different cultures that arise with different values, different assumptions, different rules that emerge out of how they've survived, except for Israel. It is the only society that went straight from a slave rabble. You remember they were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years. Moses led them out, this disorganized slave rabble. He brought them to Mount Sinai, and God gave them the law. And it was the law that changed them from a rabble into an organized society that was able to flourish for thousands of years. Slave to a functional society because God intervened. Because God knew what a people should look like. These rules did not emerge. They were not spontaneous. They were not something that they discovered. They came down from a mountain, Mount Sinai. Moses gave them as God's law to the people, and the people organized themselves into tribes, centered themselves around the Ark of the Covenant. The law told them how to live together, how to settle disputes together, how to eat, what to wear, how to move, how to interact with the cultures around them. And it was very successful. When they enter the Promised Land, they produce a very successful, rich society. Solomon was considered one of the richest and, most, and wisest people in the world. And by the way, broadly speaking, where do people in this world, our world today, want to live? They want to live in societies and cultures, nations, that have been shaped by the values that were given to Israel. Every Christian culture traces its value system back to the law of Moses. Our assumptions about each other's worth, our assumptions about how to spend our time and what to do, all come back from this law. And by the way, I would say, you know, I became a Christian when I was 30 years old. Although I grew up in England, I, I didn't go to church, and I didn't really have any moral education. Um, I wasn't completely raised by wolves, but I had no moral system. And um, I was able to travel and see how different people lived. I, was, I did that for 10 years. And for me, coming to Christianity was one of the reasons. There are other reasons, but one of the reasons was it was the first philosophy that seemed to address every stage of life. How to cheat children, how to be a family, how to grow up, how to spend your time, how to deal with problems, what to do as you get older, what's going to happen when you die. It has a lifestyle that is appropriate for young people and middle-aged people and old people and even older people. It is a complete way of life. 
And so many of the other ways of living, especially ones that you'll see in places like New York or other places, they're great when you're young and beautiful, but they don't work for the long term. It all goes back to the law of Moses. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, and with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. That's a striking thing for him to say. Remember, this is a teacher of the law. That's his livelihood. He's rejecting or demoting the value of all the burnt offerings at the, tape, at the temple, the sacrifices, the priestly system, uh, Passover, the whole professional cast of teachers and priests and uh, teachers of the law, Sadducees. He's saying none of that is important. These things make up the bulk of the law that Moses gave Israel, but they don't capture the purpose of the law. What is the purpose of the law? To love God and to love each other. It'll create a good society, it'll create wholesome people, but more importantly, it'll allow us to be in relationship with God. That is the essence of the law. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any questions. Some of you were here at the beginning of this sermon series. Do you remember back chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark, how it began? It begins with Jesus getting baptized. He's then tempted in the desert. And then we read this. So baptism, temptation, and then Jesus went into Galilee, north of Israel, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The gospel, the essence of the gospel, is that the kingdom of God is here, is near. Well, how has it come near? Through Jesus. Jesus is the returning king. Jesus is Lord, the Messiah. And when you repent of your old allegiances, your old ways of life, and crown him Lord of your life, acknowledge him as your Lord, you become part of his kingdom. That's what it means to become a Christian. You are not far from the kingdom of God. I wonder if Jesus had a smile on his face when he said that. It doesn't say, but you know, this was a positive enough encounter. The man is right there in front of him, right? And what is Jesus saying? The kingdom is right here. It's near to you. Now, it's near in the sense that this man understands the meaning of the law. He understands God's love and love of others. But also, right there, standing in front of him, is the Lord, is the king, is the creator of all things. He's speaking to him. He could touch him. He could kiss him on the cheek if he wanted to. He's right there. But what's missing? He's so near, and yet something is missing. 
He needs to repent. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God has come near. All those burnt sacrifices, all the rituals of the temple and of Israel and the pilgrimages, all the law and the rules had a purpose. To show Israel and the world that the things of the world were unclean in relationship to the holiness of God. And to turn to God had a cost. Something had to be done with all the elements of who you are that are unholy, unwholesome, ungodly. What's going to be done? Well, think who Jesus is. He is God. And he loves God. And he loves his people. With all his heart and all his strength and with all his mind and his soul. What is he going to do? He becomes a sacrifice. The Apostle John, who knew him best, said this. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. He loved God with all the muchness of who he was, the abundance of who he was. And he also loved us. And that's what the table is. Because the table is his body, everything that he had. And the cup is his spirit, his life's blood, pulled out so that we could have his life. This is God's family table. We can come to it because of Christ's sacrifice. We can love and be loved because he loved us first. And when you eat and drink, this morning I want you to think about that. Christ loves you so much that he was willing to give himself away completely. All the muchness, all the abundance, all the wonder of who he was and his relationship with his father, he gives to you, to me, to all of us this morning. That's why we worship him. That's why he's worthy of worship. That's why he's worthy of being our Lord. It's the Christian gospel. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that through Christ, you have brought your love into the dark places of hatred in the world. And even in the middle of the darkest, most terrible things, you never stop loving, even into the heart of death. Lord, we thank you that you first loved us. Help us to turn to you now, to repent. In faith, to call you Lord, to trust in your goodness for us. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.